Welcome to the Herd Storytelling Podcast. I'm Colette Burroughs-Rose. And I'm Caroline Dyer. And we create safe, fun and empowering spaces for people to tell their true stories out loud. On today's episode, we're talking with Carl. Carl recorded his story for us in 2022 for an exhibition we created in Manchester, UK. The exhibition was called Proud and it celebrated people from the LGBTQIA community. Their stories formed a walking trail of living portraits throughout the city centre. First, we're going to listen to Carl's story and then we've invited him onto the podcast to delve a little bit deeper. The space felt very isolating in the sense it was quite small and I spent every single day in there, sat on my sofa, drinking wine or drinking vodka. And the only time I left would be to go over the road to the shop to buy more booze. I wasn't seeing any people. I wasn't in touch with any of my friends, with any of my family. Even though a doctor had said to me, okay, we need to test your blood because you've got a problem with alcohol. That didn't seem serious to me at the time because I didn't know that I had a problem because everyone else in lockdown was drinking and there was almost this culture of, yeah, just drink to get through it. And, you know, my friends would always be like drinking or having a glass of wine when they're working from home, that type of thing. But nobody knew that I was doing that from seven o'clock in the morning. Someone would call me with the results because the place where they were done, it, it wouldn't be open. And it'd be an alcohol nurse that would call me, so a specialist nurse. And she'd actually tried to call me a couple of times and I didn't take the call because I was drunk, which is kind of my like first response excuse. But I think I didn't take the call because I didn't want to. I didn't want to hear what she had to say. And then Janet rang me, I think, a third time. I answered the phone and she was really lovely. I realised she was about to like, say something to me that I probably didn't want to hear. I almost felt like she was setting the scene to say, you know, I'm not messing about here with what we're going to talk about. I've been doing this a long time. And I remember she said to me, right, so you're in the thick of it now. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And she said, what I mean by that is this is the depth, the deepness of addiction you're right in the thick of it. And even just her saying that, using the word addiction, it feels uncomfortable. Am I an addict? I don't think I am. I think I just like a drink and it's gone a bit too far. And then she said, so on your blood, your red blood count is really low. Um, there's possibly some issues with like function in terms of kidney, livers, etc." And she just came out and said, if you keep on drinking the way that you're drinking, you are going to die and you'll be very young. And she said, your parents will come to your funeral. She said, I'm not just saying that to like for effect. That is, that's what's going to happen to you, Carl. Um, the only friend that I was connected with was Anna. I remember having a conversation with her after I'd spoken with Janet, because Anna was a rich, she was such a good friend. She would ask about these things. She would say, okay, what did the doctor say? What are your blood results? What's going on? This program that you've been referred to, what is it? 
I remember being very emotional and I remember crying saying, I, I don't feel like anybody's priority. Like I don't feel like anybody cares. And Anna found that quite difficult because she did care, but I just didn't have a feeling of people looking out for me. And she said, Carl, every day I'm on tenter hooks waiting for the police to call to say that you're dead, to say that they found your body, to say that I'm going to have to come to the apartment. Like every day she was expecting that call. I realised I didn't want to die. That wasn't the ending that I wanted for my life. And somewhere, I guess, there is a feeling of wanting to be here, but just not knowing how to live in a normal way. I went through my treatment. Um, I had a lot of help. I explored a lot of stuff from my childhood. I delved really deeply into like who I am as a person and why I'm that way, why I behave the way that I do, removing the addiction. The drink almost doesn't matter. It's how I think and like my mind and my psychology. My therapist, Steve, in rehab saying, I'm proud of you, you're a good person. Really positive language like that, that I'd never really had. It started to help me build some self-worth and some confidence. For years, I never thought that my drinking was an issue because all I was doing in my mind was having a good time with my friends. The way that I made connections as a young gay man that moved to Manchester was going out on the scene, having a party, going to the club. And don't get me wrong, I had some brilliant times. I really did. But over the years, that became unhealthy because I was surrounded by people that drank like me, that wanted to drink beyond normal drinking limits to an extent to find an after party. I think in the gay community, gay men in Manchester, that's really normalised and in many ways glamorised. My life is completely different. I am physically well. I'm mentally better. I'm not sure I'll ever be like mentally well and I'm not sure that's even a realistic goal, but yeah, I'm healthy. I've gone from a nurse saying, you know, your organs are knackered and you're probably going to die to, I'm 37 and I'm in the best health of my life. I've never been this healthy. I've got a relationship with my friends, with my family. Like I've got a better relationship with my nieces. But my goal in sobriety has always been, I just want to be a responsible adult. I want to be emotionally just somewhere in the middle. I don't want to be like peaking and troughing with real highs and real lows. I'm comfortable just being okay. But actually that, that approach actually ends up meaning that you end up being great. So I actually know Carl from taking a fitness class together and we fast became friends. He always seems to have a smile on his face. So when we sat down to work with him on his story for the Proud exhibition, it took me by complete surprise as to the journey he'd been on and the dark places he'd been. Honestly, for me, it didn't really add up this positive person, but with his history. His 
story is one that we have been really looking forward to diving into a bit more deeply and we're absolutely delighted to be able to have that opportunity now. So Carl, welcome to the Herd Storytelling Podcast. We are delighted to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited and I'm excited because me being involved in the campaign has been such a, a transformational part of the last 12 months for me. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Can you take us back to the time when you recorded your story with us and why you chose to share that particular story at that particular time? Yeah, I guess it was when I saw you were looking for people to be involved, the word proud just really struck a chord with me. So at that point, I was about a year and a half sober and I wasn't fully there, but I was getting to the point where I was kind of owning my history and owning my past and feeling less shame and feeling proud that my life at that point was very different to what it had been when I was in addiction. But more specifically, the I guess the perspective of as a queer person, something that was kind of fundamental to my story is the fact that there are massive links to my drinking and drug use and my involvement with the queer community and my connections in the queer community. And it's not me saying, oh, that's happened because of that community. That's That wouldn't be accurate. But what I experienced and observed is an environment that I found myself within the queer community where my lifestyle was encouraged and um, in a way glamorized. And, you know, I think that is really common within a certain demographic in that community. And, and for me, I guess I just wanted to put the spotlight on that and say, here, there's this, you know, I love my community and, and you know, it's my chosen family, but there is some stuff happening. There are some things happening that we should be talking about more and we're not, you know, if we care about each other as this community in the way that we talk about it, then, there should be more attention put onto this topic, which was for me, addiction and drinking and drug use. It was terrifying, but felt important. There are many elements of your story that that stand out to us, and I think themes within it that seem to come through. And one of those is like a sense of disconnection. Um, at that time, you know, you say that your life had shrunk due to lockdown. So I think there's, there is quite a physical disconnection, which I guess a lot of us were, were feeling at the time. You know, for some, that was more exaggerated. But also, I think what really struck me was a sense of disconnection from yourself. Yeah, so um, that's so... You're so on the money with that. The disconnection with myself... It took me a long time to figure that out. Um, and it was almost, addiction was intentional in terms of, it was allowing me to disconnect with myself. I don't want to be in my head. I don't want to be me. So I'm going to disconnect. I'm going to put myself into oblivion with drink or drugs. And it was, you know, that was my kind of tool and mechanism to be able to do that. And 
getting sober just wasn't an option because then I would have to connect with myself, right, and figure all of this stuff out. It clearly came as a shock to hear that, that as you put it, that you were in the thick of it, you know, as, as the, the nurse described. And what did you hope in your sharing of the story that the listener would take away with them? When I uh, first stopped drinking, I found comfort in other people's experiences. And, you know, it's, I've shared that I had treatment. I went to um, a community-based rehab. I, I was involved in fellowship meetings, etc. And there are kind of support mechanisms that you get through those different elements of, of support stroke treatment. But the power for me was always when I heard other people describe their experiences and their feelings and their thoughts in the same way that I felt or in the same way that I had experienced. And I think that is because it made me feel like I wasn't crazy and that there wasn't something wrong with me. My intentions with sharing my story, it has always been about trying to reach people that might connect with my experience. And given the Proud campaign was, you know, part of Manchester Pride and, and specific around the queer community, there couldn't be a more direct connection, right, to, to potentially talk to people that might be feeling like how I used to feel and how I was feeling back then. I would just like to ask about um, a particular moment in your story. There is a moment that that particularly stands out um, to me, and, and that's the delivery of the news by the specialist nurse, the results of, of the tests that you'd had. And it seems to be a really pivotal moment, that moment, you know, one that obviously sparked many steps that, that came next. But can I ask if there's a, a particular element of your story that has stayed with you? You know, if there's one sort of particular moment that you felt was was pivotal yeah it it was that moment it was that moment where the alcohol nurse said to me look cards on the table I'm not pulling your leg I'm not saying this for a fact um I've been around for a long time she'd been a nurse uh, in alcohol uh, well in substance misuse I think she described it as for two decades um, and what she observed in not just my blood results but in my honesty around my consumption etc etc her prognosis was you know the outcome's not not great it's pretty bleak and prepare for the worst um, and yeah that was that was the pivotal moment that got through and I remember um, this was a, a telephone conversation because um, it was COVID at the time, so um, I'd been for the bloods in person, but then the results were telephone. And there was the reality of being sat in my apartment, sat in my lounge with my curtains drawn in the environment that I'd been sat in for the last 12 months, drinking and taking drugs by myself. No one else is getting through to me um, physically, you know, through any other form of connection. 
and I've taken this call and this woman's saying to me, yeah, you're going to die. Um, and I remember it like so, so vividly. I remember being sat on the edge of the sofa. I remember my palms sweating, my forehead sweating, that feeling of like panic and dread that kind of rises from your gut and is that feeling of, you don't get it a lot, it's just when something really bad is happening. Um, and yeah, it that physical reaction, uh, not just hearing the words, but that physical reaction in my body, it, I almost like recoiled physically and psychologically and it, it was like something's got to change. Um, so yeah, that without a doubt, that was the pivotal moment. That part when you talk about in the story, um, when you're you're speaking with Anna and you say, I don't feel like I'm anyone's priority, I don't feel like anybody cares, that really shook me. She says to you that every day she's waiting for a call from the police to say that you died. And I think the reason that it shook me and resonated so much with me is that feeling of loneliness, isolation, not being seen is the reason that we founded Heard. It's because we wanted people to know that they their story matters, that they matter and they are not alone. Has sharing your story helped you realize how you are a huge priority and that people care? Oh my God, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it's not just been strengthening connections that kind of pre-existed in my life, but new connections that have come as a result of it. Um, you know, it's, I, I think I told you at the time, um, it was actually the weekend that the campaign came out and I was in Canal Street and I was enjoying a sober pride, which I never thought I'd be able to do. Like, my God, who would go to pride and, and not get wasted? Um, but I was having the time of my life and someone literally approached me who'd seen the campaign and who'd listened to my story to ask me about, it was really interesting initially to ask me about how I felt being out at Pride not drinking and did I feel weird dancing. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way, I'm saying it from a perspective of I totally get it because I spent years feeling like that. So yeah, it was a really like connections um, with people that I already knew, but then connections with people that I'd never met, but had listened to the story. The process of crafting the story, um, so that there is a process, and when we're working with people to to develop their stories, we're, we're taking them back to the very heart of the moment, and we're, we're really tapping into to how, how you felt at that time. How did you feel going through this process and sharing your story? And did the shaping and recording of it go on to have an impact on your life? Yeah, totally. Um, so the day that we recorded, I was terrified. And um, so many times just wanted to bail. I was so close to, to not doing it. Um, and I guess that's kind of you know, just anxiety and, and cold feet and all of that, that type of stuff. But um, yeah, I was really close to, it was really frightening, the fact that I was just going to sit and talk about it, um, 
really openly knowing that then it would be published for all to listen to. Um, and when I was, my first day of treatment, um, there was this chap, Lee, who was over a decade clean and sober. And I remember he said to me, two words, he said, turn up, turn up for everything. When you're an addict, you don't leave the house, you don't turn up for your friends and family, you don't turn up for yourself, you don't go to doctor's appointments, dentist's appointments, you don't go shopping, all of these things. You might make plans, but do you follow through with them? Turn up. And it's such a simplistic thing, but it really sat heavy with me because I never used to turn up for anything. Um, so bringing it back to the day of the recording, you know, that was in my head. I was like, no, and, and that's like one of my mantras is turn up whenever I'm getting nervous or a bit anxious or cold feet about something that is outside of my comfort zone. Um, I just say to myself, you know, turn up. The process of crafting my story wasn't, it was kind of naturally in my mind. So I didn't spend too much time kind of dwelling on what to talk about. Um, but then the process of talking about it, I actually found quite difficult. And when the story came out, something happened that I'd not really anticipated. So I listened to it for the first time. And it was like I'd never heard the story. It was like I was a listener listening to someone talk about their story. And I couldn't believe how bad it was. You know, there was... There was this gravitas and I was like, oh my God, this was, you know, my life was so bad. The situation was so bad. It was just such a, a mixture of emotions. I wouldn't describe it as happy. I wouldn't describe it as sad. It, I struggled to kind of pinpoint what the emotions were, but I think that's because it was everything. Um, but what I was left with on the other side of that is the biggest sense of relief that I'd felt since I'd got sober. It was like I'd shared this, this cloak, like the Harry Potter cloak, this invisibility cloak that is hiding everything. I totally shed it and it was like, no, this is me and anyone can listen to this story now. And I'm gonna own it and I'm okay with it. Like I'm okay with accepting myself. I'm okay with, connecting with myself in this way. Well, you have to tell everybody what you went on to do. Yeah, so I'd always had kind of podcasting in my head because I'd listened to a podcast in my early days of sobriety that was about addiction and it was similar kind of storytelling. It was the two hosts were addicts and I connected with their stories. I set up my podcast, um, What Next? Uh, and that launched a couple of months ago now. We've got five episodes out. It's been really well received. And so people come on to What Next and they share their experiences with drink and or drugs. But with a perspective of, you know, it gets better with hope. Like, what does life look like now that you're sober? And it's been really powerful. It's early days, but it's having the desired effect. People are identifying with it and people are connecting and it's encouraging change, which 
it's just incredible. Now, I know that we have already touched on people coming up to you, sending you messages, giving you a lot of feedback to your story and the power of sharing a story is incredibly healing both for the storyteller and also for the listener as well and which is why we make active listening central to everything we do so that the people who shared their story know that they've been heard and we actually have had a few people contact us with messages for you Carl who've heard your story stop yeah which we'd like to share with you oh no don't <laughs> I'm gonna get emotional Carl, this is Anya from Ireland. Um, I just listened to your story. Wow. Um, full of gratitude, but uh, dense in the experience of addiction. You can hear the the sadness and the loneliness, and then the theme of hope sort of rings true whenever I hear it. Um, you know, you're a credit to yourself and how you've changed your life it's not easy this thing of addiction it it holds us by the scruff of the neck and it um it's hard to change but you've been one of the people who've changed it i just think it's incredible these stories are incredible your story's incredible and it gives a lot of people hope it gave me hope and um what's out there is a life beyond your wildest dreams and you've achieved that. Gunairi and Boherlat, it's an Irish proverb that means may the road rise to meet you. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so lovely. Um, yeah, by the scruff of the neck, God, I really felt that. I really felt that. It, it, it's like, yeah, just being kind of tossed around, dragged around um, by the scruff of the neck. That that hit me. Um, that's so lovely to hear, though. And it's like, it's still genuinely, every time I hear some positive kind of feedback or some form of connection with the story that's told it it just really floors me it really floors me and um just really reminds me why it's so important to to share Anya is not the only person who left a message for you Carl so <laughs> you mentioned when you're enjoying a sober pride and a random guy came up to you yeah, and spoke to you. Stop it. Hi, Carl. I listened to your story and I just wanted to let you know that what had a profound impact on me is how positive your life has become since working through addiction. And, as you say, in the pursuit of a more responsible way of living, away from the extreme highs and lows of addiction, what has resulted is your life changing in a way that is so much better than what you imagined. Your story inspires me, and I can honestly say that your positivity radiates. Thank you for sharing your story. 
Oh my god. That's so <laughs> Gosh. Um Wow. That's incredible. Your positivity radiates. It's so lovely. Oh, that's you've got me. I can't believe you did this. Um that's amazing. Um that's what it's all about, right? Uh for once I am a little bit lost for words. Well, I hope you're not too lost for words because we are going to direct people now to listen to your podcast and follow you. And how can they do that, Carl? They can do that through connecting with us on Instagram at whatnext.podcast. There are link tree links to the podcast. Um, you can just search for What Next Podcast on Apple, Spotify, all of the mainstreaming platforms. So yeah, give us a listen. I cannot encourage people enough to go and do that. Thank you, Carl, so much for your time today, for recording your story for us for the Proud Exhibition and for allowing us to be a small part of your journey. Taking part in the Proud campaign for all of the reasons that I've described and, um, you know, the way that given the sensitivity of my story and given kind of how I was feeling and I was honest around how I was feeling at certain points in the lead up to the recording, it was just so lovely for that to be handled sensitively. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Some gratitude right back. Thank you for listening to the Heard Storytelling Podcast. To discover more about what we do and how you can work with us, find us at Heard Storytelling or visit HerdStorytelling.com. This podcast is produced by Big Tent Media. If you've been moved by today's episode and would like to leave a message for the storyteller or for us, or maybe you even have an idea for a story you'd like to tell, then please do get in contact. There's a link in our show notes and you'll find them in the description of today's episode.